Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Perry. Hello. Pandemic life has given us the space and time to rethink many parts of our lives, and for many women, it became a time to reimagine their relationship with drinking. Women Who Travel contributor Rebecca Pepler published a story a few weeks ago about that very trend, speaking to women who have both explored sobriety and more thoughtful alcohol consumption, alongside women who are also creating low ABV and non-alcoholic drinks. Today, we're joined by two of those amazing women that Rebecca spoke with to dig a little bit deeper into the subject. We're excited to speak with Piera Gelardi, a Brooklyn-based entrepreneur who has spent the last year examining her relationship with alcohol, and Melanie Mazarin, founder of Gia, a spirits-free aperitif company that hit the market in 2020. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. So to kick things off, I'd love to hear a little bit about what sets you both on a path to re-examining your relationship with alcohol and exploring different ways to drink recreationally and what that means. I actually started not drinking um, very much on and off because I was exploring just my diet overall. When I moved to the United States, I started having digestion issues and I started really looking into our food system here and what could potentially be a trigger versus not. And I did this big elimination diet to try to get better and realized alcohol was not the trigger, but I felt so much better without it. And so I would sort of go not drinking during extended periods of time, sort of using the excuse of the elimination diet to justify my non-drinking, um, which sort of, you know, acted as like a shield for all of the questions. And then when I started really thinking that I didn't really want to drink again, there was not a time, a specific date where I stopped drinking. It just one day I didn't have another drink. And as I got more comfortable, like not drinking in public, it became easier and easier. But I just realized that the fog that I felt when I was drinking was really cleared up and my mood improved and I felt like I had a lot more energy. And I think that's always how I describe my non-drinking is just having more time for everything else in my life. Beautiful. Um, for me, I, I had definitely had uh, over the years like different moments where I had concerns about the role of alcohol in my life and... Um, but it was always something where I would look up, you know, I feel like if you're Googling alcoholism, that's probably a sign, but I would look it up and I really didn't see myself in the definition of alcoholism. And so um, I would kind of go back to my pattern. Sometimes I would take, you know, have, I had done dry January before, but then I would really go back to my patterns. And I always blame my social life in New York for my drinking. I was, you know, really, really social before the pandemic, um, going out, you know, six or seven nights a week. Um, and it's such a huge part of the culture that I just kept thinking like, oh, well, I, I can't live any other way because this is, this is my life and this is my social life um, and this is my work life. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, I didn't have any social obligations, but my drinking actually increased. And then, you know, really for months I was drinking several drinks a night and sort of felt like, oh, there's, you know, that makes sense. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Like, obviously I'm coping in this way that, is so normalized. But then I just, there wasn't like really, it wasn't like a rock bottom moment. I just realized that, you know, it's kind of out of the blue, but I just, I really wanted to take a break. I think it was something I kept thinking about and not doing. And then I finally was just like, I really want to take a break. And my friend Madison Udenthal, that's a mutual friend of ours, uh, mine and Melanie's, 
Um, she used the term, I, I texted her about it because she's very mindful about her drinking and, um, you know, often goes long stretches without drinking. So I texted her and she used the term sober curious. And um, I hadn't read the Ruby Warrington book by that name, but I loved the term because it felt really open-ended. It felt exploratory. Um, and I just decided to to take a break. And, you know, I think uh, for me, it was really about exploring my relationship with alcohol, um, exploring my feelings when I don't numb them with drinking. I realized what a terrible coping mechanism it was for me in terms of, you know, I was coping with anxiety and depression um, and similar to Melanie, also kind of trying to figure out some health issues that I was having. And then I realized how all the work I was doing on my mental health and my physical health was being derailed by my, you know, my drinking habit. So I really wanted to explore what my health would be like when I removed booze from the equation. And I think the other thing I realized is I gave alcohol so much power in my life. I, I attributed alcohol to my social flair, to my exuberance, to my wildness, to my fun. And I, I was like, those things are so core to who I am. I don't want something outside of me. I don't want this substance to like have that much power that I feel like I can't be fun, that I can't be social, that I can't be myself without this, you know, drug really. So I took a break. You know, I until this year had not heard the term sober curious. And it does feel incredible to have like a new way of articulating something that's definitely crossed my, you know, my mind before. And I'm, um, I never really had like a word for it. Mm. Um, do you think that we are starting to get better at talking more openly about sobriety and choosing to lead a life with less or without alcohol in it and the different paths that lead us there? I think definitely. Um, I think it's it's still very slow, but I really hope that we're like five to 10 years away from pushing a drink on someone being the same as pushing a cigarette on someone, meaning not a thing that actually exists. I really decided to start GIA once something clicked in my mind where I realized that once I was opting out of drinking at a communal dinner table, someone would follow. And it was before the term sober curiosity. Maybe it had already been coined by Ruby, but it it was not yet like as widespread as it is today. And I think that that term is so important because it gives you a license to explore. And we always say for that reason, like GIA is an invitation to participate because there was there's this idea of exclusion. If you're not drinking, you're not included in the social experience, which makes it so, so, so difficult. Um, and I, I realized that, you know, I was hearing a lot from people as they were themselves trying to renegotiate their relationship with alcohol, like, I don't want to go out to dinner because I don't want to drink. And why do these things have to be mutually exclusive, you know? Because there just wasn't this license to participate, I guess. Um, and so I think that term has been really incredible in giving people this opportunity to explore, opportunity to label themselves because we need labels in everything that we do in today's world. And we just love categorizing. It's like the human version of mm -hmm. like the container store, you know, you need like, you needed a sober curious box because otherwise everything felt very like unorganized. Um, so so I, I think that, that the term has helped a lot. Dry January, as much as I have my own personal qualms with dry January. It's like, uh, it's like people feel like they can drink enormously during the holidays um, because they're taking this break in dry January, mm. and then like February first, you know, start binge drinking again, which which I think is a 
generally like a, a problem with with how alcohol is marketed in America as like as a coping mechanism. Um, binge drinking is like much more important. And so I feel like dry January is a little bit of a cope out, but it is also given, you know, it's been growing so much uh, dry January, at least for us. And we're a very small company. It was like by far our biggest months ever last year. And and I think it's because people are trying new things and that's that's really special. So um, hopefully it keeps growing and, and uh, you know, the dry January people will realize also over the course of a month, like the positive effects and, and hopefully give themselves the chance to try it for longer periods of time. I definitely feel there's so much more openness to talking about, you know, alcohol-free life. And it gives me a lot of hope. And I, I agree with Melanie that I, f- I feel like there's so much more consciousness just generally around respecting people's boundaries, respecting people's personal choices, respecting people's physical space, bodies. And so I think we're definitely on a path to people starting to realize that it's not okay to to push alcohol on people and to create such intense peer pressure around it. Um, I do still think it's very counter to dominant culture to choose to not drink. And so that's why we need more conversation around it. That's why we need more, you know, examples and people talking about making this choice. Um, Because to Melanie's point, I think when I've definitely found like when I choose to not drink or when I order a mocktail, I see that it gives other people permission to do the same. um, And that's really powerful. So I think there's really great momentum there, but I'd still think it's quite counter to dominant culture and that there's um, a lot of a lot of room because just the pressure, the pressure to drink and the cultural narrative around drinking, you know, for me, I I really tried to be super mindful when I was, you know, starting to stop drinking and really thinking about my why. Um, so every time I craved a drink, I would think about or write down what was the underlying reason? Um, and there were so many different ones. It was really interesting to me. One was just boredom, which I think was a huge part of pandemic drinking was, you know, I want to break up the sameness of my routine with a drink. So then I had to think about like, what's my replacement for that? How could I do something creative? Could I put on music? Could I make something? Could I FaceTime a friend? Like what's another way to sort of break that boredom cycle? Um, A huge one, though, was people-pleasing, you know, because there is that social pressure. I realized, you know, I would feel like, oh, I can't do this social thing because I don't want to drink, and that shouldn't be a choice that you have to make. And and recognizing this choice isn't about other people. It's my choice. Um, I can order a mocktail unapologetically. I can remember that others' discomfort is not about me. And remember that sometimes when I feel judged, also it could be a past version of myself that might have had that judgment of someone else. You know, Pierre, you said in the story with Rebecca that it was easier, a little easier to keep exploring that sober curiosity when you were at home alone, since you were sort of like in control of the vibe and the situation. You know, as our calendars start filling up in a way again, how are you both kind of transitioning back out into social events, dinners, travel, places where that dominant culture of drinking can sometimes be the plan for everyone else who's there? At this point, I haven't drank in a few years, so I feel like the pressure to drink 
in public events um, has definitely simmered down, which is good. Um, but I, I do know that it's a, it's a big issue for most people. I think the pandemic has given people, you know, the opportunity to renegotiate their alcohol in a way that was free of social pressure, but also people felt very lonely. And again, you know, if we're talking about alcohol uh, as a coping mechanism, which, which to me is something that is very specific to drinking in America, I would say that we drink a lot in Europe where I'm from, but a lot of the time it is celebratory. And it's harder to criticize when it is celebratory than it, when it is, you know, drinking or binge drinking for a, as a coping mechanism, you know. And so I, I think that a big part of, you know, making Gia inclusive for us is showing up on premise, even though coming out of COVID, it's actually the most difficult thing to do because a lot of restaurants are still struggling to reopen, are still struggling to find staffing, let alone, you know, rejigger their bar menu with a product that is more perishable than alcohol. Um, so it's about, you know, I would say 35% of our efforts right now, and it's 4% of our revenue, but it's something that is so core to our brand. It's like, we want people to be able to go and enjoy it with a friend. And the feedback that we've gotten, we actually got on a hundred menus in America last week. So it's a really proud week for us. Um, but the feedback that we get is that the drink patronage is really high. People come to the local wine bar where they know they can have a guia because they know they can go on a date without being questioned. You know, like going on a date, like when you're sober, even sober like me with a small s which is like meaning for no particular reason no health reason not necessarily dealing with addiction um it was really awkward it's like immediately the first question that you get asked about is why you're not drinking or mm. you can't order coca-cola at a wine bar and i also don't want to drink coca-cola <laughs> so the, the, i feel like this was a very layered answer but but um you know i think i i'm i feel comfortable bringing a bottle of guia wherever i go i feel more comfortable talking about why I don't drink, because I think more than ever before, we have information about what makes us feel good and what makes us feel bad. And I think that this conversation is also rising in tandem with a conversation around mental health that is extremely important. And also the past few years have taught us that we really need to take care of our health better. So, you know, I see some progress and I hope as much as we've been conditioned by billions of dollars spent by alcohol companies on marketing to make us feel like alcohol is the life of the party. There are some really interesting stats today, like Heineken is spending 50% of its budget next year on non-alcoholic. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. And I hope that we'll see the wind shift, you know, really quickly. I think people are just readjusting to public events in general. Like I know now that if I go to two per week, I feel like I need to be alone for five days. Uh, it takes a lot of my, you know, energy and persona. And, and so I, I hope that, that that will also accelerate like people's mindfulness around drinking. Yeah, I mean, as I'm not, um, so I took, a, I took a big break from drinking and now I'm not sober, but I'm still, I would call myself sober curious still. Like I've really renegotiated my relationship with alcohol and really enjoy, I prefer not to drink. Um, is what I've realized about myself. And so, you know, as I've been re-entering the social sphere, it's just taken, be because I haven't made a hard boundary, it's sometimes a hard boundary is easier to just say, I don't do that. Um, so it's taken a lot of consciousness for me as I've started being more social to just be aware again of why, okay, if I'm about to order a drink or if I'm thinking of having a drink, why is that? And making sure it's not 
to people please, that it's not because of social anxiety, that it's not for numbing, um, and that, you know, it's for festivity or because I want the flavor, you know, I want the flavor. And then it's really like, for me, it's about having a drink. But for the most part, I'm trying to not, you know, I'm trying to not drink and I'm very grateful for, yeah, restaurants that are now putting mocktails on the menu. Um, unfortunately, still not the majority. And so it is, you know, it's much easier when you can order a drink with like a fancy name that's that sounds delicious than when, like I went to a restaurant recently with two friends that, you know, ordered mezcal and then I was asking the waiter if there was any mocktails and they, you know, they just brought me a glass of sparkling water with like a dried up saddle lime. And it was so, it was just so, it was like, because usually I'm trying to frame my drinking as not deprivation, like because it's so often presented that not drinking is deprivation, that it's something you're living without. Um, But I've really been trying to focus on what I'm giving myself, what I'm adding, you know, the presence, the clarity. And then also I feel like not drinking has allowed me to a little bit fall in love more with myself because I have to actually, you know, when I go into a social situation, I have to rely on myself. I'm not reaching for a drink to lubricate that interaction, but that actually, I think, helps me to like see my own charm, my own social, you know, my own connection to people. Just, uh, you know, it takes some creativity. It takes like, it's it's more effort in a lot of ways, but it also, I find it very empowering and really exciting to also like come back from an evening where I didn't drink and be like, wow, <laughs> you know, you had, you had fun. You you danced, you talked to a lot of different people and you didn't have a drink. You didn't like, you didn't rely on that crutch. So it's a mix. Um, it's not easy. I think it's, you know, I have to be conscious to not fall into old patterns. Um, but I do find it really exciting and empowering. And then also really grateful, um, to Melanie and other people who are presenting these alcohol-free options to us that allow us to make that choice much more gracefully, much more easily than we were able to in the past. You've both, from what I gather, traveled a little bit in the last year or are starting to. How has sobriety or mindful drinking played out for you both on the road? How have you explored drink options when you're traveling and have you found there have been certain destinations that have felt more accommodating to being sober curious than others? For sure. I was very lucky to, well, I think I'm very lucky that I'm from France. And so I get to go back a lot um, to France and Italy. Um, So I spent, you know, a chunk of the summer there last year when it was reopened. But interestingly, it's a culture that's really focused on drinking and where I never feel quite welcome as a non-drinker, especially I think because there it's very celebratory. So as soon as you opt out of drinking, you are a Debbie Downer. And you know, when I presented the idea of a guia to my parents, they were very confused by it. And they thought, why are people going to buy it if it doesn't have alcohol in it? And what set me um, on this track is that at the time, my little brother was 22 years old and he lived in Paris, you know, goes to university, drives a scooter, 
super social guy. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, I'm always going out and I don't want to be drinking and I don't want to be driving, you know, after. And I think it sort of links back to this idea of like deprivation. I really love the way that you put it, Piera, because I, I feel like I have much less deprivation in my life now that I don't drink. I can actually have a full day of work, go to a social event and still make my 8 a.m. workout and be completely clear. Whereas before, you know, it would have been difficult. I would have been foggy, it would have been. And so, you know, interestingly, I think Europe is definitely lagging a little bit. Um, this trend did start in the UK. So, and I wonder why, but I'm thinking maybe because drinking alcohol is so ingrained in the culture there that they've had to have uh, more options. So it sort of started there with um, a lot of gin analogs, Sidlet being the most famous one. And I'm currently sitting in Baja, Mexico, one of my favorite countries um, is Mexico. I just think it's so special. Everything between the people being so kind and the depth of the culture and um, just paradise on the coast and the waves. I love surfing and whatnot. And Mexico, the food and, and they have, they serve a lot of agua frescas everywhere. So it's really easy not to drink. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, if you're in New York and you're going to Cosme or in Atla, uh, half of the beverage menu is non-alcoholic and I think it that's why it became one of my favorite spots in the city they have this like palo Santo infused you know uh drink and their beverage director Yana is just one of the most talented people and she's really able to infuse complex flavors which I think haven't quite penetrated like our culinary world in the United States quite yet but Mexico I would say very much so you know the flow de Jamaica and all of the local roots they really use those in a way that's much more than one note um which would be a sugar note and and uh, and layered um, kind of layered and complex that makes you feel like you're having an adult drink and makes you feel included. So um, definitely highly recommend. Jamaica is my favorite mocktail. Like I mean, or just I mean, it's such a delicious drink, and it is so complex and you know you can dial up or down the the sweetness of it. But it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I just love it. I love the color of it. I've been drinking it like also like in the glass that I would drink red wine in. And yeah. I just, I think it's actually, I think a really great um, holiday. I was thinking about that. It's like a really great holiday, non-alcohol drink to serve because it's so, it's such a beautiful color and has cinnamon in it. And I was like wondering if you could put cloves in it too. And I'm going to try mm -hmm. it out, but yeah, Mexico is definitely, I haven't been to Mexico since before the pandemic, but Yeah, there's there's so many incredible alcohol-free drinks there. Um, I was traveling through Europe this summer. I went to visit my partner's family and live live with his mom for two months. And I was really nervous about it. The culture in Germany is also very drinking-focused. And um, my in-laws drink a fair amount. And so, yeah, I was worried about, um, I was definitely worried about visiting them and I was trying to make a plan for like how I was gonna not drink. And actually when I, I was so worried about them not accepting it. And when I arrived, my mother-in-law had actually stocked the fridge with non-alcoholic beverages. It was so sweet and so thoughtful and I couldn't, I kind of couldn't believe it because she, um, you know, my past experience of her was like her constantly refilling my glass of wine and offering, you know, and like offering me a glass of wine, like before I was going to bed. And so I really thought she wasn't going to be, um, 
accepting of it. And um, I just realized that it's like her, her love language is like acts of service. And so the wine pouring, you know, as much as it's something that is part of how she lives and what she chooses to drink, um, she was just as happy to like pour me a Crodino. So that was, that was nice. I mean, it was definitely, for me, it was tricky to travel and choose to not drink, especially, um, part of my, part of my trip was, um, a week of vacation in Greece. And I, I realized that one of my associations like a vacation is, you know, is having a drink is, you know, having a drink at like a seaside spot and very much that, you know, that spirit of festivity and being in the moment and the flavor of that place. Um, so it really just forced me to think about like, what are, what are other flavors of that place that I could experiment with? And, um, you know, it was definitely a varying degree of availability of alcohol, you know, of non-alcoholic drinks that were palpable to me that weren't like a super sugar hit. Um, I did grow to love like apple Schola in, in Germany, which is like an apple juice spritzer. I felt like that was a, a decent beer replacement. Um, they do actually in a lot of German breweries now have alcohol free beer, but unfortunately I'm gluten intolerant. So, uh, didn't, (laughs) didn't, didn't work as a replacement for me, but yeah, I, I I don't know. It was like a different kind of exploration. You know, I discovered Greek Mestiha water, which I thought was really an incredible flavor that I hadn't tried before. And a lot of, a lot of kind of spritzers, different kinds of, different kinds of spritzers. Um, a lot, I, I was making a lot of drinks myself and, um, so that, that kind of worked out, but it's definitely a different, a different experience in different places, I think have different levels of, you know, available options. Melanie, just talking about flavors, I'd love to know how any traveling that you did before you started Gia, how those travels kind of sparked any of the flavors that you can find now in the in the drinks. For sure. A lot of the flavors that we decided to put in Gia were and it was it was a very long development process. It was fifty-five weeks. We served a thousand Gias before we finalized the formula because we wanted to know, you know, how people felt about it. It was it's difficult to describe and you can only try it to really taste what it feels and, and how it how it makes you feel and on a social level as well. And and so I really started with the drink that I really was craving because I, I had been not drinking for a while and and I love eating out and so we really wanted to make a product that was culinary focused. So for us, it was about creating a drink that would complement the food that chef would put on the table or that people that cook for you would put on the table. And so it meant doing something that was very dry, that was um, appetizing. And the, the idea of, you know, aperitivo, the French apéro is, is so ingrained in my culture, you know, and my dad's Italian. And, and so there were all these like bitter amaro flavors mm-hmm. always in my life and the citrus and, you know, this idea of really honoring local plants um, and local herbs from the garden and all of these things. So that's kind of where we started. I knew I wanted it to be dry and bitter. I wanted it to be really refreshing. And I also wanted it to be very versatile. And I think that that's where a drink like Gia is really easy is that you can, if you like the flavor on its own, you can just have it with sparkling water. But if you prefer a sweet note, you can have it with ginger beer. And it's like a really easy cocktail to kind of make your own. So that's definitely, I would say it's more like my childhood um, that influenced it. But I also 
was very inspired. You know, the last trip that I took before COVID was I went to Japan and they have incredible mixology there. And my friends were really excited to do that. And I felt like I was going to be excluded. And it was just not a problem for the bartenders to create flavors that were really complex. And they use syrups and they use extracts and they use, you know, the oils that are in the peel of the fruit. And, and I was able to have such incredible drinks that the word mocktail just doesn't do justice to. And I actually mm-hmm. hate that word because it even has a joke in the name and it just feels like it's just not good enough for uh, for the, the options that some of these people um, can actually bring to life. So still so much to explore, but, but I was definitely very inspired by the range um, of possibilities. Okay, so uh, to wrap things up, who are some women in the non-alcoholic drink space or who have been having conversations around being sober or sober curious that you'd encourage our listeners to follow for encouragement and inspiration? Um, I would definitely give a shout out to our common friend, Madison Utendall, because Mm -hmm. I feel like she was really early on that train and refusing to define her relationship with alcohol, but also feeling extremely comfortable in not drinking. Uh, And I've seen her, you know, cheer with a drink at weddings or parties, but also very comfortably opt out of it. And that was like, we went to college together. I've known her for 12 years. So um, that's definitely, she was was super early. And I also um, really appreciate Julia Bainbridge, who she was very OG. I feel like a lot of people are now hopping on that train and she opened the door for many of us to be able to explore our relationship with alcohol by actually bringing to life the amazing options that are out there. And and I think there's a lot more coming to market, but she talks a lot about loneliness, which is often very associated with drinking. And she also talks a lot about non-alcoholic drinks. She's very much the expert. She has an incredible book and she's super relatable. She's I'm a very personal like fangirl of Julia because she's super smart, super beautiful, super real. And she is really mindful in the way that she speaks and she uses her word. And I feel like from her, I have definitely learned and assimilated like little phrases to help explain my non-defined sobriety. So I feel like that's tremendously important. And obviously this is a women who travel podcast, but I think it's also so important to like shout out the men who don't drink because I feel like they're even perhaps more under pressure to drink than women. It's something that it almost like defines like part of manhood for them. And and so, you know, it's like you see like Brad Pitt thriving, you know, doing charity in Los Angeles, not drinking. You're like, wow, Brad Pitt doesn't drink. Should I not drink? Like, I think it's really cool. And, and they're also advancing, you know, sobriety. So a lot of a lot of shout outs. Pierre, how about you? Oh, well, I echo Melanie. Um, my friend Mad- Madison Udenthal that we share was really kind of key in the moment that I was considering, you know, renegotiating my relationship with alcohol. Um, and, you know, also my friend Sophia Lee, my friend Baba Rivera, um, I think is a great example of someone who lives a vibrant social life but shows, you know, how alcohol, similar to Madison, is maybe something she'll toast with and have a few sips, but she doesn't really integrate it more than that. And then, you know, in terms of people that speak about about their relationship with alcohol kind of more prominently, um, certainly Ruby Warrington, um, the author of Sober Curious that we were talking about before. You know, I, I think Holly Whitaker, too, um, who wrote Quit Like a Woman and her Tempest group, which is kind of a women-focused um, AA replacement, um, just taking a really different approach to 
um, to talking about how, you know, our relationship with alcohol, you know, I follow Tempest and, and definitely find it, you know, to offer some really great helpful tips and re reframes on different situations. Like they'll talk about, you know, just strategies for what to do when you, when you get to an event and you're going to not drink, like, it's very practical, um, so I, I appreciate that. And yeah, Julia definitely is inspiring to me in terms of uh, recipes. Yeah, but I'm having, you know, also I'm having fun looking at different, you know, I think a lot of different chefs are now kind of presenting non-alcoholic beverage options and, and just seeing that through a new lens. And then, you know, also very, very um, inspired by like I said before, but women like like Melanie who are leading this alcohol-free festive drink movement, you know, that's really, I think that's so important and exciting to see that happening. Well, we will link Instagram accounts for all of the women that Piera and Melanie have just mentioned. If people want to find you both on the internet, where can they keep up with you? My personal Instagram is at Melanie Masarin, M-A-S-A-R-I-N. And um, I'm mainly on at Drink Gear. And my personal Instagram is at Pierre Luisa, L-U-I-S-A. Amazing. Uh, you can find me at Okay There Mare. And I'm at Lale Hanna. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. We will also link that in the show notes. Uh, thank you both again so much for joining us. And we'll talk to everyone else next week.